0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Before we begin the program, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the aboriginal custodianship of the country. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Australian Research Council Food Processing Training Center and also the University of Sydney, I would like to welcome all of you to the Sydney IDEA event today. I'm very delighted to introduce the speaker to today's Sydney IDEA event, Professor Li-Ping Zhao, who is a distinguished professor of microbiology at the School of Life Sciences and Biotechnology, Shanghai Jiatong University. He is a senior editor of the ISME journal and a fellow of American Academy of uh, Microbiology. Li-Ping has contributed significantly to the understanding of the causative role of the gut microbiota in obesity and related metabolic diseases. Science magazine featured a story on how he combines traditional Chinese medicine and gut microbiota studies to understand and fight obesity. He is going to give us an insight about gut microbiome, a new target for managing human metabolic health and I'm sure you will enjoy his, uh, his speech. Following his speech, my colleague from Charles Perkins Center, Pro- Associate Professor Andrew Holmes, will have an open discussion with him and then it is open for this um, question and answer from the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Li Zhao.
1: Uh, thank you, Professor Degani, for your kind introduction. And uh, thank you all for coming to my talk, and uh, particularly to those who do not have a seat. And uh, um, so we, I know uh, why you are here, because uh, microbiome has become such a hot topic in the past few years, and it's related to everybody's health. And uh, people now talk about uh, probably in our body, we have bacterial cells which, are, can, be, which can be 10 times uh, uh, more in their cell number to our human cells. So by cell number, we probably are only ten, one-tenth human. And uh, uh, by gene numbers, we probably only one-hundredth human because in our own genome, we have probably 23,000 genes. But in our microbiome, particularly in our gut microbiome, we can have well over uh, several million genes. And so that's why I could say that uh, if you don't know much about microbiome, I hope this talk can help you a bit. So before you hear my talk, you are you, but after you hear, you are no longer you, but you and your microbiome, okay? (laughs) And because of it, uh, uh, our human body is already very complex. And uh, adding to that complexity, 10 times of uh, some, more than one some different species of bacteria and up to 100 times more different genes, you would know this becomes a dauntingly complex system. But how can you approach such a complex system? We have two strategies and top down and bottom up. So let me show you what do I mean. So this is my postal address. Uh, It's uh, in English and also in Chinese, and exactly the same information, but in two opposite ways. So in English, you start with my given name, my family name, the room, the building, the university, the city, and the country. It's bottom up. But in Chinese, it's the opposite. You start with the country, the city, the university, the building, the room, the family, and then the person. So we are top down people, you are bottom up people. (laughs) And uh, so throughout my talk, you probably could see how I try to combine the top down approach and a bottom-up approach and try to use both uh, uh, Western thinking and the Chinese thinking, Eastern thinking to uh, dissect the (coughs) complex system and such as human body and with its microbiome. Um, We know all complex systems, no matter it's uh, man-made or it's natural, uh, they actually follow the same principles for design and uh, A good good complex system would would need to be both robust and resilient So you need to follow the principles of modular design, functional redundancy, global regulation and all all that But all in all, the most important uh, thing for a complex system is the so-called emergent functions So if you understand all the single parts of an engine, you probably still don't know how an engine works and whether a running engine has any problem. And uh, you have two strategies. You can stop the engine every time you sense some problem, break it up, and try to identify the problem. But you could also just look at the so-called emergent functions. Functions that only a complete running system can show. For example, uh, vibration, noise, and exhaust gas. So all these things are the so-called emergent properties or emergent functions of a complex system. But each part would be contributing to the uh, emergent uh, function in in one way or the the other. So by actually monitoring any changes in the emergent functions, you can also try to understand whether the system is healthy and what kind of problem it, it may have. So Chinese medicine works like in in that way. And uh, so Chinese, traditional Chinese doctors, they always look at human body as a complete system. They read the signs that only a live person can have at the whole body level. And then by based on several principles or eight principles they have developed over over several years and they try to identify the problems inside of the body. And then, based on the identification and the stratification, they give you something and try to correct you. And, and then they evaluate changes at the whole body level again. So this is just like using vibration, exhaust gas, and the noise of a running engine to try to monitor the health uh, of a running engine online and non-invasively. But we know that we need Uh, better because the the system, the the way they do the work is holistic, dynamic, and personal, but it's empirical. And uh, can we try to, um, can we do something, can we uh, combine the molecular approach developed by the Western medicine, but we only look at the whole body level changes uh, so that we may be able to take advantage of both Western medicine and uh, Chinese medicine. Okay, if we look at uh, urine, blood, and the fecal samples, we know these are the emergent functions of a live person. And uh, however, all these three windows, they show uh, millions, millions of different uh, uh, variations at a molecular level. So probably we can use some omics technology to do molecular profiling of variations in those three windows, so we can measure changes at DNA, RNA, metabolites, and proteins, and small RNAs. So all those changes at molecular level in these three windows can be captured and quantified, and eventually all the data can be modeled and 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 to try to recognize any patterns which are associated with phenotypes at the whole body level. So in this way, hopefully we could combine uh, the molecular, the advantages of molecular medicine from the West, but using use it in a way uh, that the, the tra- traditional Chinese medical doctors only look at the human body level, whole body level. So this is the thinking and the approach I'm trying, uh, I have been trying to use in my research and uh, If you look at a gut microbiome, you can realize that they are contributing to our phenotype just because they can synthesize various bioactive metabolites or substances. Those can get into our bloodstream, regulate our genes, modulate our immunity, and change our metabolism. So they are contributing to our microbiome. so I would like to focus today on the topic of microbiome and metabolic diseases. Obesity and uh, obesity-related diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, uh, ha- has become a worldwide devastating epidemic in both developed countries and also rapidly developing, developing countries. Professor Jeff Gordon's group in US, they are a the pioneer in this field, and they showed by using germ-free animals as models that the whole gut microbiota can actually regulate genes in host lipid metabolism. For example, it can inhibit a gene in the gut which is required for burning stored fat. And it can upregulate genes in the liver for synthesizing new fat from glucose. So in this way, the whole gut microbiota, when you introduce back to a germ-free animal, the animal starts to accumulate more fat but on less food intake. So gut microbiota can help the host uh, synthesize and accumulate more fat and uh, even over a less calorie intake. And another group, uh, uh, Professor Ghani and his collaborators, they showed that the uh, lipopolysaccharide, uh, a toxin called lipopolysaccharide endotoxin on the surface of gram-negative opportunistic pathogenic bacteria, if they get into the bloodstream, they can provoke and sustain a low-grade chronic inflammation. And they showed that if you inject a low dosage of LPS continuously for eight weeks to mice on low-calorie diet, they can become obese and insulin resistant. If you inject the same uh, level of LPS on uh, CD14 knockout mice and uh, they no longer respond, they no longer uh, 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 with inflammation, then without inflammation induced by LPS, you don't have this obesity and insulin resistance. So both these lines of work showed that gut microbiota play a very important role in obesity and probably diabetes as well. And uh, uh, however, we need to identify, understand, which would be the key members or key players in such a complex ecosystem. And people have also been working very hard trying to identify the difference between obese microbiome and a healthy microbiome. And there are many uh, differences uh, uh, reported However, a very fundamental question remains challenging. What we know from many publications, obese and diabetic people have a different microbiome compared with healthy people. But whether it is the result or the reason for the disease, is it because uh, I become obese so that my microbiome change, or it is because my microbiome changed so that I become obese? So chicken or egg, this is a really a fundamental question. And uh, in this 2013 Nature Reviews Microbiology paper, we argued that we should follow the logic of Koch's uh, postulates established for identifying the causal agent of a particular infectious disease. Uh, however, we should modify so that we can adapt to the polymicrobial nature of microbiome and the chronic disease. We first needed to do microbiome-wide association studies so that we can identify all the uh, bacterial populations which are either positively or negatively contributing to the disease. And then we should uh, isolate the bacteria into pure culture and then use them either singly or in combinations in animal model, like in germ-free mice or germ-free pigs try to see if we can reproduce the disease phenotype. If we can, and then we should elucidate the molecular mechanism. We should understand what kind of molecule produced by the bacteria identified, and uh, interact with what receptors of the host cells, and uh, uh, induce what kind of signaling pathway, and eventually contributing to the development of the disease endpoint. So only after all these studies, can we convince people that the gut microbiome indeed plays a very important role in chronic diseases such as obesity and diabetes, and then the identified bacteria can become both biomarker for prediction and for diagnosis, and also become target for manipulation, for treatment. Uh, as a microbial ecologist myself, we translate the question causality question into try to understand Who's there in the gut microbiome? Who does what? And with whom and how in relation to development of metabolic diseases? To answer those questions, we need to have uh, three things in mind. First, we need to know that bacteria species is still a very wide, uh, very can cover still very widely diverse, genetically diverse, and functionally diverse bacteria. And it's just because uh, two different strains in the same bacterial species can share up to 30% genomic difference. Human and the mice uh, only share 10%. So that means in, one, in the same bacterial species, two bacterial strains or populations can still be genetically three times uh, more different than human and the mice. So that's why we, we need to go down to string level. We need to identify the genome of each bacteria if we want to uh, understand its function. And the second is we know from macroecosystem studies, bacteria, uh, all the species in a macroecosystem are not uh, uh, equally important. In a forest, for example, you have the tall trees as a foundation species. When they grow up, uh, grow up to a certain abundance level, they would cover the whole forest, create a humid and shady inside environment for all the other members to thrive and to grow. But if you remove the foundation species, you lose your forest. But we don't know whether in our gut ecosystem uh, there are any bacterial species which are playing the role uh, in the, as tall trees uh, for forest and uh, when they grow to a certain abundance level, they change the gut environment and make it favorable to beneficial bacteria and unfavorable to uh, detrimental bacteria so that we have a healthy gut. We don't know whether such bacteria would exist or not. And uh, in micro ecosystems, species are not independent from each other. They form uh, different functional groups called guild. In each guild, members in each guild, they thrive or decline together. So they work together to adapt to the environment. But different guilds, they may co-occur or co-exclude from each other. We don't know whether the gut bacteria, in our, uh, they would uh, form different functional groups or they're just a random assembly. And we need to find out. So with those in mind, they approach the approach, the thinking and, and all this, The question we would like to ask, so then comes down to the research uh, strategy. We don't do much to compare healthy people with uh, the uh, diseased people, try to understand which species or populations would be important to the disease, and because of the uh, diversity of gut microbiome and individual uh, uh, difference, uh, many differences between healthy and diseased people are actually not related with disease. So we use a different strategy, uh, interventional studies. We try to change the microbiome of a diseased person and see if the phenotypes are changing. If we are improving the health phenotypes, then we would collect the urine, blood, and fecal samples over time, before, during, after intervention. And then we try to analyze molecular level changes in those three windows. And then we do data mining and try to identify uh, and answer who's there, who does what, and how. And uh, how can you change the gut microbiome? And uh, we, we, we learn from traditional Chinese medicine because Chinese medicine has been using food as medicine for thousands of years. And uh, in China there is a officially published list of plants by the Minister of Health. Uh, plants on that list have been used by Chinese doctors as medicine for thousands of years but they can also be used as food. So in China, they are medicine, but they are also regulated as food. And uh, we look at those, and we we did analysis and a test, and at least two groups of uh, ingredients or components from these plants are uh, contributing to modulating gut microbiota to a healthier, hopefully to a healthier uh, structure, and uh, one, is various polysaccharides. Complex carbohydrates, which are not digestible to human, but are fermentable by, uh, hopefully, God, beneficial gut bacteria. And another would be various phytochemicals, such as alkaloids, berberine here. And we show that berberine is a very bitter compound. Its Chinese name is Huanglian Su. And we showed that one single pure compound, berberine, uh, can dramatically change the gut microbiota structure. So, together with high fat diet, you, when you give high fat diet and the berberine together to rats, the rats would not develop obesity, inflammation, or, uh, but they have a dramatically changed the gut microbiota. And uh, so, by combining uh, whole grains, traditional Chinese medicinal food, and the prebiotics, we developed a Dietary intervention scheme, where we call it "feed me, feed my bacteria" diet. So we are providing balanced macro and micronutrients to the host, but at the same time, we try to introduce uh, diverse and large amount of polysaccharides and phytochemicals, which can change the gut microbiota. I myself was the first volunteer of this diet. So over years, I lost about 20 kilograms and recovered from uh, metabolic syndrome. So the story was featured in science, and if you're interested, you could uh, uh, look at the article. So now we have uh, uh, an interventional scheme. We can change the gut microbiota, uh, and uh, by taking urine and fecal samples and analyzing changes of metabolites in the urine and the changes of uh, bacteria in the gut, we probably can uh, answer the question, who might does what, who might do what? And uh, so this is a proof of principle study. uh, Back in eight years ago, we conducted with Professor Jeremy Nicholson in Imperial College and uh, several colleagues in China. So we collected urine and fecal sample of a seven-member, four-generation Chinese family over time, uh, over monthly interval, so we analyzed the variations, inter-individual and intra-individual variations of the gut bacterial populations, and also uh, murium metabolites. And uh, then by using OPLS, uh, we tried to correlate the changes of w- between these two windows. So in this proof of principle study, we were able to identify 10 different bacterial populations. Each showed at least one association with a urine metabolite. Some, like this uh, red uh, underlined one, showed eight associations. So this is an indication that this particular bacterial population may directly or indirectly impact a wide uh, uh, range of metabolic pathways of the human host. So by looking at who, who, which bacterial population may be correlated with which urine metabolite, we may be able to answer the question, who does what in a microbiome. So at least we may be able to formulate a hypothesis and to help us to focus on the ones which may be functionally more important. So by combining the dietary intervention and uh, the metabolomics and the metagenomics uh, uh, approach, collecting urine, blood and fecal samples over time of a uh, cohort of people who are changing their gut microbiome by taking the uh, dietary approach. Um, We published a paper, a clinical study last year in e-biomedicine on uh, dietary intervention of a genetic form of obesity in children. It's called Prader-Willi syndrome. So children have this uh, uh, genetic form of obesity. They were born with very low muscle tone. So they couldn't even uh, suck milk because of the low muscle tone problem. So before weaning, they were weak and small. But after that, uh, when they start to take solid food, they quickly develop a form of hyperphagia. They are hungry all the time. It's very difficult to satisfy them with food. And uh, very difficult to control their body weight growth. So very quickly, like five years old, they may become over 40 or even 50 kilograms and they continue to grow their body weight, and many die prematurely in the early 20s and 30s because of the complications from such uh, severe obesity. It's very difficult to control their body weight growth, and uh, however, we accidentally found out that about 30% of the mobile obese children in our hospitalized dietary intervention program uh, in Guangdong Women and the Children's Hospital turned out to be PWS patients. For, for example, this particular boy, 40 years old, 140 kilograms uh, to start with, and after 285 days in the hospital on a dietary scheme, he became 83.6 kilograms. And he continued intervention at home. When he came back for medical checkup after 430 days, he was 73 kilograms. This was only diet, no exercise. So we eventually recruited 17 children, PWS children, and they stayed in the hospital for three months. And 21 simple obesity children, they stayed in the hospital for one month. At the baseline and end of each month, they had a medical checkup, collection of urine, blood, and fecal samples. So after one month, uh, they can lost about 10% of the initial body weight. After three months, about 20%. And they all showed significant uh, improvement in uh, glucose homeostasis, uh, lipid profile, uh, and uh, liver function. And they all, the both cohorts, uh, all showed uh, significant alleviation of the chronic inflammation associated with obesity. And we know from uh, uh, Professor Ghani and the colleague's work, uh, endotoxin load in the bloodstream. Uh, Coming from the gut microbiota may be contributing to this inflammation So we checked lipopolysaccharide binding protein as a surrogate marker for the endotoxin load in the bloodstream It was significantly reduced after the dietary intervention Uh, And then we transplanted the gut microbiome at the baseline and uh, three months after the intervention from the same individual to germ-free mice all the red colored data are from the Uh, mice receiving microbiota at the baseline. And the green colored data are mice receiving the gut microbiota post-intervention. So you can see that in the first two weeks, the uh, the, the mice receiving the baseline gut microbiota lost weight uh, and had inflammation in their gut and in their liver. After two weeks and the inflammation was gone, they start to catch up their body weight growth but by primarily synthesizing more fat. So the size of the adipocytes uh, was small at the end of the two weeks, but significantly larger after two weeks. While mice receiving the post invention microbiota grow normally, uh, didn't have inflammation, and didn't change the size of their adipocytes. And so this is an indication that. We know that diet is very complex. Diet can probably have direct health effect on human cells, but diet can also change gut microbiota composition. So this study showed you that the dietary induced changes of the gut microbiota may be at least partially contributing to the improvement of the health phenotypes. And we then using uh, NMR-based metabolomics to analyze the profile metabolites in fecal water and uh, the red-colored data are uh, individuals from before intervention. The other colored are different time points after intervention. You can see there is a significant shift uh, of metabolites in faecal samples after the intervention. And uh, OPSDA analysis showed that it's an increase of various uh, carbohydrates and a decrease of many metabolites, such as trimethylamine, TMA. And then we analyzed the six... Short-term fatty acids, we know that gut bacteria grow in uh, an anaerobic environment So they extract energy from organic matter by fermentation and uh, they take some energy But they release short-term fatty acids and we see there is a relative increase of acetate But a relative decrease of isobutyrate and isovalerate So this is an indication that after the intervention gut microbiota gut bacteria start to use Carbohydrates as energy to produce beneficial short-term fatty acids such as acetate which is uh, anti-inflammatory and uh, But uh, they they know from uh, fermenting proteins to produce uh, Potentially detrimental metabolites such as uh, isobutyrate and isovalerate And we also analyze the urine metabolites and there is also a significant shift after the dietary intervention and then OPSDA analysis uh, showed that, uh, identified four metabolites increased after the intervention and nine, nine metabolites decreased after intervention. Among the nine decreased metabolites, four are co-metabolites between gut bacteria and the human liver. And the top one, TMAO, is actually uh, a very hot topic in the past few years because in 2011, A Nature article showed that uh, TMAO may be a risk factor for atherosclerosis because in the bloodstream, TMAO can promote plaque formation. And TMAO is produced in the liver from a substance called TMA. TMA is produced in the gut by gut bacteria from some dietary fat, uh, from dietary choline, So coming from dietary fat. So anyway, dietary fat containing choline and uh, choline after digestion, choline can be converted to TMA by gut bacteria. TMA, when it gets to the liver, can be converted to TMAO by the host enzyme. Uh, and, uh, and then TMA, uh, TMAO uh, turns out to be a high-risk factor for promoting atherosclerosis. But we don't know which bacterial species or populations are responsible for converting choline into TMA. And uh, so now, after analyzing blood samples, fecal water samples, urine blood samples, before, during, after the intervention, we see footprints of bacterial activities. So now we come to sequence the fecal DNA. Uh, Each sample, we sequence 80 million reads, eight gigabytes data. After going through the bioinformatics pipeline, we were able to identify a little bit over two million genes microbial origin and uh, but all the genes are uh, genes, many, many of the all the genes they are originally uh, clustered in one DNA molecule and but uh, after this process we, we don't know which gene is actually together with which gene uh, originally in one DNA molecule but if two genes are encoded by the same DNA molecule they would change their abundance across all the samples where you can detect them very tightly. They increase or decrease altogether. So by using this principle, we take a, a canopy-based algorithm. Eventually, we were able to cluster the, the individual genes into a little bit over 20,000 groups called co gene groups. Out of these 20,000 CAGs, 376 uh, containing more than 700 genes. So they are bacterial genomes and uh, 161 of those are shared by more than 20% of the samples. So these are the prevalent gut bacteria uh, genomes. So we, we, we mapping all the high quality rates back to each CAG and eventually we were able to assemble high quality draft genome for 118 different gut bacteria, prevalent gut bacteria. So now we have more than 100 genomes of prevalent gut bacteria in uh, these two cohorts, and we also identified 13 metabolites in the urine which are changed after the intervention. And so we, we did a correlation analysis between these identified bacteria and the identified urine metabolites, and uh, we were able to, out of 118 CACs, we were able to correlate Uh, 31 actually positively correlated with the urine concentration of TMAO. And uh, among the 31, uh, 13 bacteria uh, genomes actually encode the genes, the two genes for enzymes which are required to uh, uh, convert choline into TMA. So uh, these more than a dozen genomes of bacteria. They are not only correlated with urine concentration of TMAO, They also encode the two genes which are required for synthesizing the precursor of TMAO in the gut. So they are highly likely the candidates which may be able to uh, contribute to development of S-ROS crosses by converting choline into TMA. So up to now, everything is just association study. It's not a causative mechanistic study. But because of the development of the metabolomics, metagenomics tools and bioinformatics and statistics, we probably uh, now we, 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 we identified the, the best candidates, potentially the best candidates, which may play a causative role in a particular disease phenotype. So we are now isolating the bacteria of these 13 uh, uh, genomes, and we have already got some of them. We can now put them into germ free mice of APOE knockout mice model and try to validate the function, understand the molecular mechanism. So, after all this work, then these bacteria may be used as both biomarkers and also targets. Uh, so, coming back to the two fundamental ecological questions, uh, we did co-abundance analysis of 161 prevalent gut bacteria genomes, and we were able to grow, uh, classify them into cluster them into 18 guilds. And each colored group uh, is potentially one guild, a functional group. Members in each guild they increase or decrease together. But if two uh, guilds are connected by red line, they co-occur. If they are connected with blue line, they co-exclude. If you look at the uh, 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 bottom left, you see GIG3. This group containing three bifidobacterial uh, species or strings, and uh, they they were promoted to a high abundance level by the dietary intervention, after the the dietary intervention. And they, they show the highest number of negative associations with many other bacterial genomes which are either pathogenic or potentially detrimental by synthesizing some toxic metabolites. So we suspect that species in this group, in GIG3, may be the so-called foundation species, a guild of foundation species. So when they grow to a certain abundance level, they, they acidify, for example, they acidify the gut. So they lower the pH so that many other bacteria can no longer grow particularly uh, pathogenic bacteria. If you lower your gut pH below five, many pathogenic bacteria cannot grow. And we know that bifidobacteria can also produce antimicrobials. So altogether, so promoting the right bacterial species may help you uh, change your gut's environment and make it unfavorable to pathogenic ones and favorable to uh, beneficial ones. So. Because all the members in one guild, they increase or decrease together. So we can actually add their abundance together to get a group level abundance change. So now we see that six groups didn't respond to the dietary intervention. The dietary intervention didn't change the abundance of six groups. And we ignore them. And then three groups on the bottom promoted by the diet. The other nine... Actually decreased by the diet, so now we have. If you look at the groups level abundance, you can start to see correlation with many disease phenotypes. So before, at the individual gene level, at the individual species or string level, we cannot see this connection. But after you group them into potentially the right functional groups, you start to see each uh, each group can actually are either positive or negatively associated with at least one disease phenotype. And some are associated with 12 disease phenotypes. So this is statistics, this is association. But it's a very interesting uh, network that emerges from this study. So we are now trying to isolate representative members from each guild and uh, establish a synthetic consortium in germ-free mice or germ-free piglets and then try to understand the molecular interaction between members of the consortium and the molecular crosstalk between the consortium and the host on the various dietary or other environmental conditions. And uh, I would like to switch to another story. Now we focus one uh, particular bacterium so, Professor Ghani and uh, his collaborators, they showed that uh, a particular microbial product, uh, lipopolysaccharide endotoxin, produced by gram-negative opportunistic pathogens, uh, if you inject uh, low dosage, uh, long-term injection uh, into mice, and then they start to develop inflammation and also eventually become obese and uh, uh, insulin resistant. <coughs> uh, so, we... we In this particular study, it's a case study with a 26 old, 175 kilograms heavy young man. And he started with, uh, 100. he was on the program for 23 weeks and he lost 51.4 kilograms. Only diet, no exercise. And he recovered from uh, hyperglycemia, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and uh, uh, and also reduce the inflammation and uh, uh, reduce the lipopolysaccharide binding protein after the intervention. If you if you do a very simple uh, DNA fingerprinting analysis, a long time you can see at different time points from zero day, four weeks, nine weeks, thirteen weeks, eighteen weeks, twenty-three weeks after intervention. You see changes of the pre- predominant bacterial populations. So each band represents one particular group of bacteria, and we see on the bottom, three uh, at the baseline, three predominant populations, quickly decrease to a non-detectable level after four weeks on the diet, and uh, if you sequence the DNA out of the three bands, they are mostly uh, species from Enterobacter. So this genus contains 10 species, all uh, pathogenic, um, and gram-negative. So the LPS of these species can induce inflammation. And we did a metagenomic sequencing of the samples at different time points, and we were able to identify 30 genes used in synthesizing LPS. Most of them decrease their abundance after intervention. So we start to isolate bacteria which single bacterial isolates, which can migrate to the identical position of three bottom bands. And uh, this is called sequence-guided isolation. So you are not isolating any bacteria to study. You are isolating the bacteria because based on the DNA analysis, you know they are potentially important. So by using the DNA sequence information, it can help you zoom in and identify the, the corresponding bacteria. So eventually we identified a strain called Enterobacter cloacae B29. When we put the B29 in germ-free mice, it can colonize the mice. If you inoculate 10 cells, 100 cells, it grows up to uh, more than a trillion cells, and very quickly. And they maintain that high population. So they can colonize the gut. Interestingly, germ-free mice, as shown by Professor Goddard's group and many others, are resistant to high-fat diet-induced obesity. And so if you give them high-fat diet, they don't become really obese. But if, you give them, if they have the gut microbiota, they become obese. But if you give them this only single pathogen isolated from that obese human gut, they become obese. They become obese, insulin resistant, they have fatty liver, they have inflammation in the liver, in the fat pad, and interestingly, this single pathogen can inhibit the expression of the fat gene in the gut, which is actually promoting fatty acid oxidation and inhibiting fat storage. So shutting down this gene will make fat storage easier, but fat burning more difficult. And this single pathogen can do this. And uh, the colonization of this single pathogen can promote the expression level of three genes for synthesizing new fat, ACC1, FAS, and the gamma. And so, once a single pathogenic bacteria colonizing the gut can change the lipid metabolism in a way that the fat would be easier to synthesize and uh, store, but difficult to be uh, oxidized. And uh, it's interesting that if you colonize the gut with the pathogen, and if you if it's a high-fat diet, they be eventually become obese and insulin resistant, and you see high level of endotoxin in the bloodstream. But if it's normal diet, nothing happened. And so, high-fat diet may serve as an environmental trigger or environmental condition for the pathogenic bacteria to, to become really pathogenic. And so this is almost like following the caucus postulates of identifying the causative agent of, a patho- uh, of an infection disease. We identified this particular pathogenic bacteria which can induce obesity in germ-free mice. And uh, in the past uh, uh, two years, we worked with Professor uh, Philippe Gerhard at Yingha in Paris, and we, we mutated a gene in the uh, LPS synthetic pathway, pathway. So the mutant lost its capacity to induce inflammation and it lost its capacity to induce any obesity in related phenotypes. So if you don't have the LPS, the pathogen can no longer induce, uh, if you don't have a pro-inflammatory LPS, the pathogen is no longer able to induce obesity and insulin resistance. No inflammation, no obesity, no insulin resistance. And, uh, I would like uh, we, so we, we, we probably have five minutes to uh, finish the uh, Chinese medicine story very quickly, because this is a full herb decoction. And uh, it was used for treating diarrhea more than 2,000 years ago. So it's called Gen Tang. However, Professor Tong Xiaoling in Guanmen, uh, TCM hospital. He tried started about uh, ten years ago. He started to use this uh, decoction to treat early diabetes, type two diabetes, and it was very successful. So we worked together trying to understand why. So we recruited 187 uh, early type two diabetes, newly newly diagnosed type two diabetes patients. Randomized them into placebo, low dosage, medium dosage, and high dosage group, and and they were maintained. Uh, in the treatment for, uh, for three months. Uh, at end of each month, uh, at uh, baseline, at end of each month, we got collection of urine fecal samples and a medical checkup. So the medium dosage and high dosage group showed a significant improvement in fasting blood glucose and also A1C. And the uh, placebo and the low dosage, no, no uh, effect. If you look at the gut microbiota changes based on 6S RNA sequencing, there is a shift, a dosage-dependent shift, after three months. And if you look at the time series change, it takes one month for the high-dosage group change to this location, to this space. But it will remain there without the further change. And, but at that time, no significant improvement of phenotypes yet, of disease yet but after another two months, you see significant clinical improvement. So the changes of gut microbiota responding to the herbal decoction treatment was earlier than the improvement of the disease phenotype. So this herbal-induced changes of gut microbiota may be the cause, not the consequence of the, disease, uh, of the improvement. So we were able to identify 4,251 OTUs or roughly species, but 47 were increased by the treatment and 99 decreased. And among these 146, if you do correlation with A1C and fasting blood glucose level, some are showing a positive, a negative association, positive association with the disease phenotype. They are pathogen like bacteria, but some showed a negative association. It turned out to be one particular species called the Fecalibacterium was significantly improved or promoted by the uh, decoction uh, and uh, in a dosage dependent manner and uh, we know from our pns paper eight years ago this particular species actually showed association with eight urine metabolites so it can be functionally very important and one month after that a French group showed that one string from this species can be anti-inflammatory, so it's beneficial. And then in 2012, BGI Shenzhen, they published a Nature paper after sequencing more than 300 uh, type 2 diabetic patients and uh, 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 more than 100 healthy people, and they identified this species as decreased in diabetic patients' gut. So over eight years, different groups, different strategy, different studies, all come down to this species. It may be potentially uh, beneficial. So we have isolated the strains from this species, and we are trying to understand, uh, to show whether it's beneficial in type 2 diabetes uh, people. So basically, in the past 20 years also, medicine has grown into genome medicine. And in the past 10 years also, a new form of medicine, if we call them microbiome medicine, is also emerging. Probably need the combination of these two, and also the combination of the bottom-up and top-down approach to understand uh, health, nutrition, and environment. And uh, we need to have ecological thinking, and uh, we need to have systems thinking, we need to use restoration ecology if we want to uh, recover from uh, chronic disease. And we need to have the concept of emergent functions and focus on urine, blood, and fecal samples, this kind of uh, uh, whole body level emergent properties and as a way to monitor changes of our health, evaluate response of our body to any type of intervention. So this may help us understand the traditional medicine. This can also help us to monitor the health of millions of people over time. So by using this kind of analysis, each person at each time point can be captured, can be uh, quantified in its health status with uh, thousands or even millions of data points. So I would like to finish. The uh, sci- uh, Genetics told us that our genetic potential of lifespan may be 150 years. So on the y-axis, It's the health status. So normally we are born healthy. And so the ideal life trajectory would be like this. So you remain healthy throughout your 150 years and die in the last week, okay? (laughs) And uh, some people were uh, were unfortunate with uh, severe genetic defects and die prematurely. We know that these two type of people, they are there, but they are rare. And most people, we go a trajectory like this. So before 50 years old, we are okay. After that, we are going down the hill. So eventually, 80% more people end up in hospitals with at least one kind of chronic diseases. And some people can remain alive uh, more than one decade in a hospital and uh, because of the medical technology development. But we... If the decline of our health after mid-age is due to the genetic defects in our own genome, we really cannot do much uh, up till now, and uh, all in the foreseeable future. But if the genetic mutations in our own genome can only increase the risk for a particular disease, but the manifestation of that risk need environmental triggers, and the gut bacteria living inside our gut Maybe the internalized environmental uh, condition. So if you grow a right microbiome, you can keep your health, keep yourself healthy. But if you grow the wrong microbiome, it turns, it change from a partner for health into a pathogen for disease. It starts to push you to the disease condition. If that's the case, we have hope. We can change our microbiome back to the healthy status and monitor it. And make sure that you remain, you have a healthy microbiome until the last day of your life. So, eat right, keep fit, live long, die quick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Li Ping
0: so it was very interesting talk and uh, before i invite uh, professor andrew home to come and join us for a discussion i would like to invite everyone to join us for the three days workshop that we have and it will start tomorrow uh, this is uh, advances for food and biotech uh, advances in biotechnology for food and medical application and i invite you to all join us in this event, and hopefully you will learn more about impact of food on our health. And I now invite Professor Andrew Holmes to come here and we can hear more about microbiome. He's an expert also in the east, this area in Charles Perkins Center. Better.
2: You don't want to hear all that stuff again, those of you at the back. (laughs) So one of the things that's always uh, struck me about this sort of area is that um, everybody's different. We've all got different uh, genetic background. We've all got different cultural histories with these different foods that are available to us. There's different foods that we choose to eat. And everybody responds differently when you give them a therapy or when you put them on a diet. One of the uh, distinct problems for for Australia is that we've got a a highly multicultural society. So we've got a lot of very different groups in terms of their behaviours, how they're going to react when you you say to them, you need to eat this. Some people might say, you're kidding. Some might say, yes. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, how that might uh, interact with China, for example, and in particular, what might happen when Chinese people go elsewhere in the world or when Australians might go to China. How can we expect diet advice to be uh, working across those different contexts?
1: Uh, It's really challenging to to convince people that you should change your diet. And uh, we know that different people, uh, they have different response to the same diet. And so you need to adapt even it's the same dietary scheme, but you need to adapt individually uh, so that you can get, uh, you give each people a different treatment so eventually you can get the same results. That's probably the challenge where you you need to, Mm -hmm. so it's individualized, but then the current uh, uh, scientific research scheme and uh, the statistics probably do not like RCT uh, design does not support this kind of uh, research very well. So it's a challenge, Uh, and uh, if you move, if you have a very diverse, uh, uh, if you have a cohort of people with very diverse uh, ethnic background, genetics, and and all that, it's even more challenging. And so that's why I think we need to work together, uh, scientists and clinical experts in various countries, so work together, try to understand the daunting complex question. How does it change your gut microbiome and then your health? And uh, so...
2: So I, I was fascinated by the, the big complex multicolored dots diagrams. so the, the genome interaction groups. And what, what you're looking at there really is that if you take a cohort of people and you look at the correlations that you're seeing across many different people, that you can see certain recurrent patterns where there are groups of bacteria that you might see go up or go down. But probably the devil is in the detail. In any one individual, it won't be all of those species in the group. It will be just some of them. So if you're a someone who's suffering from a weight problem or metabolic disease or some other inflammatory condition of the bowel and you've read all this great stuff about... Uh, the gut microbiome and people are running around saying get your poo sequenced we'll be able to tell you what's wrong with you. That's going to complicate things. That you might get a, a different answer for each person. So where do you see the, the future in terms of using the gut microbiome for diagnostics to be able to personalise strategies for people to say this diet will work for you but not this one. or You, you need to take this type of
1: intervention, you don't. This is uh, uh, still a, a very early stage for microbiome to be used as diagnostics or as target for treatment. We still need to accumulate enough data and over a wide range of populations with uh, wide uh, diverse genetic background, ethnic, dietary pattern, and, and all that. And uh, before we really and also different disease stage, different diseases. And uh, before we really can be confident that, if you give, give me your poo, I can just uh, tell you how healthy you are. <laughs> and probably it's not, not that easy yet. And, but it's coming. It's coming, as we, yeah. we all know. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, there's been some, some uh, quite impressive papers recently with uh, colorectal cancer and another one with trying to, to predict postprandial glycemic response. And I guess the unifying feature of those has been not just one sample, like the, the poo sample, but incorporating other aspects of, uh, of health, other, other measurements together with that gives a, a more
1: powerful response. Exactly. We, you need uh, what we call metadata. You need uh, many other types of data. And uh, also just uh, for, the, uh, for the gut microbiota analysis alone, you cannot just rely on sequencing. You should also analyze the metabolites, the toxicity of the faecal samples. There are many ways to tell you uh, whether your gut is healthy or not. And currently the medical field has many tests to tell you that. But the many problems probably are driven by the dysbiotic gut microbiota. So that's why sequence the gut microbiota, combine that data together with what you can get with all the existing technology and could, can help you. But uh, don't believe anybody who just say, give me one poor sample, I can tell you everything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. so, so the last uh, sort of comment and question I'd like to it is, you gave us a, a wonderful story with uh, the top-down versus bottom-up thinking that you can get with uh, different cultures. And It's all very well to to look at how we might fix people up after they get sick, but what we really want to do is to stop them getting sick in the first place. So you gave us a nice little story about how you tracked down the TMA-producing bacteria, and uh, that's a, a significant risk factor for atherosclerosis. And you've identified the bugs, but what causes them to increase in abundance in the first place? That's something that we could pick on as a, a public health guideline, if we were able to identify that, that top-down driver, what's causing this problem to begin with. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's
1: probably the imbalance between macronutrients of our diet. I was so hoping it, it, you'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's uh, driving the dysbiosis of the gut microbiota. does not happen by itself. It's driven by environmental conditions. The most powerful environmental condition is your diet. So when, when we eat, we are not eating just for ourselves. So there is a nutritional partition between human cells and the gut bacteria. So the amount of food, all kinds of nutrients, macro, micro, coming into your gut, will be taken mostly, hopefully, by your own cells. But the inevitably, there will be components which are non-digestible or undigested they will reach colon to be used by the gut bacteria there. And then the mucins secreted by our gut epithelial cells and the the cells which which come off uh, every three days, roughly from the epithelium, from our gut, the dead cells of our own human cells, they also come and used by the gut bacteria as diet. So no matter what you do, you are feeding not just yourself, but also your gut bacteria. So the combination of your diet and your own musing and the left cells would sustain a particular pattern or structure of your gut microbiota. So it's a bacterial form you are uh, <laughs> managing and by using your diet. So from now on when you eat just ask yourself am I eating for me for myself or am I eating for my gut bacteria <laughs> or both. <laughs> So uh,
2: there's been a, a long-running study at the, the Charles Perkins Centre led by Steve Simpson that's been looking at uh, precisely this question. In fact, there was a, a, another paper that's uh, come out today and you, you may see some media attention about this one if you, if you follow that up. But protein has been identified as one of the key macronutrients for this issue recurrently. Is that something that you're finding in your own work as well, that high-protein diets... Uh, they might be good in the short term but they're detrimental for healthy ageing or they're able to... Um,
1: When you have a a high protein diet, I think the problem would be still probably eventually you don't have enough carbohydrates for gut bacteria to extract their energy. You force the bacteria use protein uh, as energy source. So when, when, when they ferment protein to extract energy, they release uh, quite many toxic byproducts uh, as a result French of that. Treatment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you use uh, uh, high-protein, high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet to lose weight, you can lose weight, but you will also lose your health. Okay. I think
2: we should uh, open the floor to, to questions. Do we have roving microphones? Yeah.
0: Hi, thank you very much. That was amazing, that talk. I just had. you mentioned um, the acid environment, and I read a couple of papers on mice that actually had contradictory results. One said that an acidic environment, um, you know, made the the microbiome better, and the other one found completely the opposite, both published, I think it was 2014. Is there any consensus in that area about the acidic environment, you know, uh, among all the experts? Or is it still ongoing?
1: You want to comment first?
2: There's disagreement about almost every specific detail. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the precise study that you, you're talking about there. But when you change pH in the gut, which I, I guess is what you're, you, you're talking about, uh, that certainly does preempt quite dramatic changes in terms of what's happening with the gut microbiota. And uh, beyond that, I, you will get differences if you greatly change the pH.
1: And uh, more specifically, ac- acetic acid mm-hmm. or acetate and uh, has recently been identified by a Nature paper as a causative agent for obesity. And uh, however, uh, there are different opinions on, on, on this kind of finding. That's because one critical experiment to show uh, acetate uh, or acetic acid can induce obesity is to do intragastric infusion. So they, you, you infuse uh, vinegar basically into mouse uh, gastric and then you, you increase appetite. So you increase food intake. You increase body weight growth. However, the, the acid, acetic acid is locally produced in the colon. So, and it can also be produced by fermenting carbohydrates or by fermenting proteins. So it depends on who is actually producing and where. So I bet if you do intracolonic infusion of acetic acid, you will get uh, body weight loss, not body weight growth. So it's, that's why, because all the people use different kind of uh, approach, different systems, different uh, way of uh, treating the animals, so you, you can get uh, seemingly contradictory results. But eventually, uh, the truth will converge and will emerge. <laughs>
2: The other other comment to to make there is that whilst acetate has been linked with obesity in in some contexts, it's also been linked with uh, improving immune function uh, quite strongly in other contexts. So uh, you shouldn't be thinking that it's a risk factor for obesity and that just makes it bad because, in fact, uh, there's been some quite elegant work done to show that uh, just taking in acetate or taking a diet that increases the production of acetate in the colon can reduce your risk of inflammatory diseases like asthma and uh, some, some aller- allergic models, etc. So we often uh, talk about the squishy ball model or things that you can poke it in one direction, but there will be all sorts of changes that occur as a consequence of that. So you really can't take any one aspect of our health in isolation. And if you do look at just one aspect as... Is the case with those sorts of studies, it's very easy to end up with contradictory results.
1: Um,
3: I'll ask a question back here. Um, Just quickly, I just wanted to ask firstly about um, in your studies, um, obviously, there are differences in cohorts around the world in things like chlorine in drinking water environmental toxins, obviously from China. You've got all the fossil fuel byproducts, which are big. So I'm just wondering what, how you factor those in into your studies. Have you seen any you know, statistically important uh, variations that you can pick out because of that? And the second thing is the, uh, in terms of the, 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 the gut, uh, the, it's become more important uh, in terms of a secondary uh, autonomic uh, Centre for Metabolite Control and uh, Metabolism Control. Uh, just wondering if anything in your uh, studies or research have shown the importance of that and how maybe a, a compromising of that system may be involved in some of the problems you've talked about in terms of certain uh, bacteria increasing over others.
2: Um, the first question is really the, the study that we were talking about with the Chinese
1: Chinese Indian population. So, the, uh, so, your question is a uh, uh, concern on because of uh, different peoples are, are uh, different, and uh, so could you just uh, repeat your first question? I uh, yeah, just in terms
3: of environmental factors, in terms of your, the cohorts you're studying, as said in China, obviously, you've yeah. got the fossil fuel issues. Other places might have chlorinated water or in different levels, others might not, you know, things like that. So, i just wondering if that was important. Um, Yeah,
1: different environmental conditions for sure will will impact the gut microbiome. And uh, so if you do the same intervention in different countries, you may get different results. And uh, however, we, from our experience, uh, the most difficult uh, problem is actually compliance. And people don't eat what you ask them to eat, or they don't eat enough and they try to eat something else. You know. So if they, if they can be more compliant, then you have better results. But if everybody is completely compliant, you still see different response. That's from the, probably the difference of the baseline gut microbiome. So the baseline gut microbiome, because of the genetic potential of using different uh, dietary components in the gut bacteria, you do see if you give them the same diet, Uh, treatment, you see different response. But uh, for human clinical trials, the first thing when you see different results from different cohorts, the first question you ask, are these people complied or not? And then you ask whether this is difference due to the difference of their gut microbiota or not.
2: uh, Just to add a little bit to that, we're, we're only just starting to see studies coming out now where people have really effectively sampled uh, large enough populations under a large enough range of different environmental conditions to be able to start to answer that that sort of question. Uh, A meeting we were at recently, there was one of the the first presentations of data coming out of the American Gut Project. I don't know if you were at that talk as well. But um, they had, I think it was up to about 10,000 or 20,000, quite a, quite a large number of people that had been sampled across the US. And actually, there's a quite a large number of Australians and uh, British who are also in that, that study now. But in that initial pass that they did there, they saw remarkably little geographic variation. So across that US population depending on which state you were in, which, again, you would get differences in in local environmental factors there. They didn't see an obvious factor there. The the biggest commonality was if you lived in the same household, you had similar patterns, but as soon as you went to a broader scale, there was not. Now, that's a very early stage of that study, but it does suggest that those broader-scale environmental pictures, patterns won't be quite as important as habitual diet.
1: Yes.
0: I was going to, um, what we're seeing in Australia is certain ethnic groups, Asians and Indians for example, are higher, have a higher incidence of diabetes. Have we studied, is it a difference in gut microbiome or is it putting these other ethnic groups in our culture and our foods, what is the trigger? Why are we seeing more diabetes, especially in, in pregnant women, is the women I work with.
2: Uh, there's no simple answer to that one as well, but whenever you've got a population of people who are defined by some physiological characteristics, so if it's incidence of, of diabetes or pregnancy or something, you will almost always be able to find a signature in the microbiome as well because uh, to go back to the question of causal consequence, we really need to add a third C word there, which is contribution. So the microbes are so tightly entwined with their own physiology that as soon as you stratify a population say there's something different about these uh, with respect to this population, you will almost inevitably see a difference in the microbiota as well. So I I wouldn't say that the microbes are causing or a response to that, but they will be participating in whatever uh, phenotype that you're you're seeing there.
1: The the genetic background probably uh, do play, uh, does play a very important role, but on a much uh, bigger scale. For example, if you look at the statistics of type 2 diabetes incidence, it's obviously uh, probably uh, Chinese or other Asian populations. They don't need to have a much higher BMI before they become diabetic. But in Caucasian populations, you see people with a very high BMI, but the metabolic is still okay. So that's the genetics, but at the individual level, it's, uh, we, we don't see much driven by genetics, but probably by environment. Like in China, in early uh, 1980s, before that, the incidence was less than half percent. But just over 30 years, it's not over 10%. So over 30 years, uh, one order of magnitude increase of a disease, you cannot attribute that Increase to genetic change because genetic drift does not change in th- that quick. Uh, so environmental induced changes probably responsible, and the uh, microbiome is most likely, you know, involved in that, that uh, transition. So that's why people are so much interested in the <laughs> in the microbiome. But we still need to work together, the whole international community, before we can answer questions uh, like yours. Yeah.
0: I think at the beginning of your speech you had a picture that showed the foods that the Chinese government recommends as healthy and I noticed there was apple, orange, maybe oranges and lima beans. Could you just tell us simply what they were?
1: <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. The picture is wrong. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to collect, uh, have a picture showing all those uh, traditional Chinese medicinal food, but I didn't. I have individual pictures. There, there's a, I don't know if there's an English translation of that list, but uh, they are mostly being used uh, as herbs uh, by Chinese people. Uh, like one called the Chinese yam, and uh, another called the jobs tears. Uh, so all these are containing actually a high amount of uh, complex carbohydrates, at least. And they may also contain other ingredients and uh, which can change the gut microbiome. And
0: yeah. that berberis was that a food? Berberine
1: in China is regulated as medicine, not as a food. It's too, too, too. Uh, how to say that? Um, it, it's very, uh, very bitter. It's uh, very, very bitter. So the, probably you could take a bitter gourd or bitter melon, and uh, in its place. And. Uh, but I know uh, berberine itself is regulated as a food additive in the West, probably in Australia. But in China, it's still regulated as uh, medicine. Yeah. So if I wanted to Google that list of Chinese herbs, what would I look for? Ah, it's a good question. Yeah. You have uh, many Chinese colleagues around you. Just uh, <laughs> ask them to help you. <laughs> uh, because I don't know a Chinese translation of that list. I'm sorry.
0: Um, I was just wondering if you could speak a bit about the kind of, I don't know, what you call it, enteric nervous system or whatever it's called, Um, just because a large part of eating is like appetite, you know, like cravings and all that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure, like, if there's
1: been any conclusive stuff. I know I've read a bit about mood disorders and, you know, appetite, serotonin, MPY, blah, blah, blah. Just wondering if you had any info. Uh, I don't think it's conclusive, you know, but there are many indications Mm -hmm. on the connection between dispersive gut microbiota and uh, uh, mental, you know, uh, problems or uh, appetite. We do see significant improvement in the hypophagia in PWS children after we change their gut microbiome their behavior becomes so much easier, so much better, the food behavior. It's very interesting, because they, they are constantly looking for food. When they get food, they immediately put it into their mouth. but after the intervention, they are still very much interested in food, but when they have food, they hide them. They don't eat immediately. So probably psychologically, they still need uh, the, 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 the food, but physiologically, they no longer have you know, such an impulsive uh, need. And, uh, but it's a, such a complex uh, question. We need uh, many, many more studies to understand the link.
2: Yeah. Uh, I guess that a, um, a simple point to make would be that when your body absorbs the glucose and uh, monomers like the, the amino acids and other simple sugars from your, your digestive tract to distribute them around the body, it is inevitable that at the same time it's also absorbing those small metabolites that the microbes are producing. So when the uh, brain is communicating or integrating these signals from the rest of the body, it's not just getting those nutrients that have been absorbed, it's also getting all of these other things that are coming in as well. And so there is a a very tight connection between the two, and there have been some very interesting studies uh, done with... Two of the most common strains of uh, mice that are used for uh, animal studies are, let's just call them white ones and black ones. And the white ones tend to be quite friendly little guys, and very, very easy to, to handle in the lab and very placid in temperament, whereas the black ones are a bit more feisty. And there was a, an interesting experiment where germ-free versions of those were derived, and then the, the microbiota was swapped over. and actually changed the temperament of the mice. So there's a, there's a lot of studies that have been uh, done now that show that you get this association again between, uh, let's call it mental state and, and cognitive function. You can see changes in feeding behaviour according to what you keep animals on for a long period of time. There's even one study that's shown that uh, something you might think of as an autism-like behavior was able to be reversed by giving a, a, a probiotic. So in all of these cases, the, the precise mechanism is not understood, but what we can say phenomenologically is that gut microbes and their signals are a part of that emergent property of behavior.
1: And uh, now we know that uh, gut bacteria, some gut, gut bacteria species can synthesize almost uh, you know, uh, all kinds of neurotransmitters and neuropeptides. Why are gut bacteria try to synthesize, can synthesize a, a human neurotransmitter, because they, they don't need that, right? <laughs> so they probably try to manipulate us, you know. <laughs> As you're
2: talk, talking about bacteria manipulating us, there's a, if, if you go and look in the, the field of invertebrate biology, there's a lot of wonderful examples of science fiction type stuff, where a pathogen gets into a a snail or an ant or something and causes it to totally change its behaviour in a way that favours the pathogen. So snails that instead of hiding in the undergrowth crawl up onto the tops of branches and wave around so that a bird will then eat them and distribute the pathogen to a, a new field. So, so this idea that, that microbes can dramatically change behaviour is, is actually not new. The idea that it might be doing it to us in more subtle ways is what's a little bit stunning.
0: I have a question about the medical, um, international medical community uh, creating an actual system and acknowledgement of the microbiome's contribution to our health and it being acknowledged at that level so that it then becomes part of the way that we look at the body holistically instead of it being just system by system and how that might influence that ongoing preventative health ultimately at the end of the day, when someone walks into the GP, he looks at it from that perspective and how that might holistically impact and affect health, and that would ultimately be the aim. But how long do you see it being that it's going to be acknowledged as one of the most important systems of the body?
2: I would say that uh, there's quite widespread acknowledgement in the medical community already, but there's a distinction between people being aware of it having a major influence and being able to codify or, or regulate that in some way. So I, I don't think that we would be at the point, I mean, even very simple things like this is a good microbiome, this is a bad microbiome, is actually still quite difficult to do. So it would be difficult to impose that as a, a regulatory requirement, which I think is what you were, were asking but but, but as a a concept that we should be much more cautious about prescription of broad-spectrum antibiotics because that's actually harming a part of us. I think that that's actually got uh, quite a lot of traction in the medical community already for a variety of different reasons, and and we're already seeing rules for tighter stewardship of use of antibiotics, partly because of the impact of... awareness of the importance of the microbiome, but also because of the the emerging problem of multiple antibiotic resistance.
1: And some of the, well we know that the medical uh, experts, they need to be conservative. They should not, uh, you know, just responding to any new development immediately. So it's good for them to be conservative in in a way. But then it's also very important for them to change, you know, to respond to the new development. And uh, I think right now there's a very important uh, understanding of how C-section delivery may actually seriously impact the transmission of the essential beneficial gut bacteria from mothers to the infants. And uh, we know how widespread is the C-section delivery now. We are cutting off the link, the natural link or the natural transmission process of uh, beneficial bacteria to our infants. That's actually very, very urgent and, uh, but this kind of uh, 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 knowledge needs to be spread over uh, very quickly into the, into the uh, medical circle and people are working on that, but it's not uh, quick enough. No. <coughs> Sorry. Just
3: a very quick question. Sorry about that. Um, All the way through, what I've heard is that the the positive impacts of things on, like, obesity and um, type 2 diabetes. What about dementia?
1: Dementia. There are some studies.
2: Uh, Uh, I'm only aware of one fairly recent study in in that regard, and uh, I, I couldn't really comment beyond that someone has published a report where they've seen an association between uh, Alzheimer's and gut microbiome. Again, I'd make the comment that as soon as you take cohorts of people that are separated by some physiological state, you, you almost inevitably will see a difference. So understanding how important the contribution of the microbiota might be to that at this point in time, I think, is still a little bit early.
0: Good. One last question.
1: Yes. Uh, Thank you for the great talk. Um, Can you make some comments on uh, the industrial food processing and its influence on the gut health and therefore on the population health? That's a big question. And that's what we are going to discuss over the next uh, three days in the workshop. But it's not enough. We know that modern day food processing uh, has changed our food chain. And the kinds of food, the texture, the metrics, the you know, change it completely compared with what our ancestors eat, and so it's a, it's really a big question. We still don't understand. But there are some papers showing that immersive fires and artificial sweeteners they change the gut microbiome in a negative way, in a detrimental way and may, have, may contribute to development of metabolic syndrome, for example. There are studies showing that. And also, the finely uh, processed carbohydrates, like uh, white, white rice and white flowers, have been removing many uh, components which may be needed by gut bacteria, like dietary fibers or some other phytochemicals. And uh, so we, we still don't know uh, exactly Uh, you know, what kind of problems. But the the food processing technology we have now, they are very powerful. And uh, they can be used to prepare microbiome food as well. And so there are now studies, uh, groups of people are trying to use modern day food processing to prepare food for a good microbiome. That's also uh, possible.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Li Ping and Professor uh, Andrew Holmes. And It was a very exciting area of research, and uh, as uh, Professor Li Ping mentioned, if you would like to learn more, uh, you can join us in our workshop uh, from tomorrow. We have different uh, discussion about medical and uh, food area, And uh, please join me to thank both of our guests today.